How's everybody doing? All right. That, you know, I normally have to double down and ask again, but that was good. That was a good response. But just to keep tradition alive, how's everybody doing? All right. That was strangely weaker than the first time. Um, we are going to go straight to Scripture, and uh, we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture in the book of Exodus, as well as a passage in the Gospel of Luke, and then a passage in the Gospel of Mark. Exodus chapter 33, verse 9 to verse 11 says, When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 to 15, it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people, uh, to gather with expectant hearts around your word, Lord, we desire to hear your voice, and so we pray that you would speak to each and every one of us, help your word to come alive to us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're here, that you want to glorify Jesus, you want to reveal him to each of us, you want to fill our hearts with yourself, and we thank you, Father, for the goodness of your grace that we get to encounter you in the fullness of your love. We pray you'd be with us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Uh, with a quick show of hands, how many folks here like roller coasters? Just raise your hand. All right. Now, this is my, I love asking this question because there's people in the room that have raised their hands, and there's people that have not raised their hands and are shaking their head at me. And so, so now let me ask, who does not like roller coasters? It's somewhat evenly split. I remember uh, years ago, uh, my family and I, we went to this place in Lancaster County, um, Amish country in Pennsylvania called Dutch Wonderland. That's right, Dutch Wonderland. Um, and it's a, like a kid-appropriate theme park, um, and there's lots of stuff for young kids, and they have like kid-appropriate roller coasters, but they also have ones that have loops and stuff that adults really get down with. Um, at that point, our nine-year-old Michael, he might have been like five or six. He was younger, um, but he's a tall kid, and so he met the height requirement for the kiddie roller coaster. I promise you, this roller coaster had no loops. If it went like eight miles an hour, it might have been a lot. But I remember sitting next to him, and having to hold the laughter because when we would do these little bumps, he would say, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> and so the whole little roller coaster ride was just peppered with multiple moments where Mike was like, oh boy, oh boy. Just, he was bracing himself for that feeling, that pit in your stomach where the drop happens. But if you've ever, if you don't like roller coasters, then you probably have seen people do this and you're like questioning their judgment. You're like, why would you do that to yourself? But if you like roller coasters and if you've been on one of the crazy ones, you all know that there's this, typically at the beginning of the roller coaster ride, there's that slow click, 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 click. And it's climbing. It's going slow enough to make you question your decisions, you know? <laughs> And then it reaches that moment of no return. <laughs> Whoosh! And then just everything's going, life's flashing before your eyes, you're screaming, it's, 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 and then it's over with, and, and, and hopefully you're intact. But if you know that moment before the drop, 
what are you doing? You're bracing yourself. Your, your anticipation is building. You're like, it's about to happen. I think about so many situations in life create a similar reaction in us where we brace ourselves. It's about to happen. Uh, um, some of you, uh, uh, there's some folks in our church that are about to have children. They're about to give birth to their first child, and it's like they're bracing themselves. It's about to happen. Uh, some, some folks here, you've been planning and studying, and, and that accomplishment is about to happen, whether it's a, a degree that's going to be fulfilled or a project that's going to be completed, uh, uh, a business you've been dreaming of starting. It's, it's about to happen. There's all these moments in life where we brace ourselves with uh, joyful expectation. There's moments in life where we brace ourselves with anxious expectation. I'm ignoring that for now. I'm focusing on the fact that there's so many things in life that we brace ourselves for. This is about to be good. We expect. There's an aliveness. And strangely, with respect to prayer, I have often found the absence of that expectation. As a pastor leading people for many years into moments of prayer, I have not often felt the equivalent of, it's about to happen. Wait, do you know what's about to happen? We're about to pray. A bracing for your, like, do you know we're about to encounter God? Watch. Some, for strange reasons, that has been absent. And a lot of times we'll go into prayer with little to no expectation. We'll go into prayer with a subdued, uh, we'll go through the motions. And that's so sad. Because we've settled for an understanding of prayer that's incredibly reduced from what we see in the scriptures. Now, Now, for some of us, you're probably growing in prayer in various ways. And some of us, maybe your growth in prayer at the moment looks like you are finding yourself continuously talking to God. You're saying, I'm not going to carry this anymore. I wasn't designed to carry the pressures and stresses of life. I'm going to put my burdens on the Lord. And so prayer looks like this emptying. You're, you're creating space to empty your soul and just, just pour it out to God. And that's good and that's true. And we see us being invited to that in scripture, but that's not, still not the fullness of prayer. But then for some of us, perhaps our growth in prayer looks more like, uh, I'm not just coming to just unload on God. Actually, I'm coming to listen. I'm coming to still myself because you're realizing that prayer isn't a monologue. It's a dialogue. It isn't just us talking to God. It's creating space for God to talk to us. And that's true and that's beautiful, but even then, if you put those two things together, there's still somewhat of a reduced frame of understanding with what the fullness of prayer looks like in Scripture. And today we're going to tackle what we have been truly invited into by God when he invites us to be people of prayer. If you're joining us for the first time and you weren't here or you haven't listened to the sermons the last couple of weeks, we're in the middle of a sermon series. The title of the series is called Sankofa. It, it's a word that comes from an African proverb. And this proverb talks about a bird um, that is moving forward while its beak is looking backwards. It's, it's walking forward, but it's looking to where it's been. And it's this kind of image that plays on this idea that often we can't move forward unless we take time to understand the past. Unless we understand where we've come from, we don't know actually how to chart forward. And with respect to our walk with Jesus, there's so much that the scriptures teach us. There's so much that church history teaches us. Of when we look at the lives of people in scripture and outside of scripture, and we look back and say they were intentional to do certain things to make sure certain disciplines were alive in their life in order for them to move forward in a way that they were close to Jesus with intentionality. Things happened, rhythms were in place, disciplines were cultivated. 
And so we're trying to look back, to recover, to recapture, to make sure that we don't move forward without understanding the foundations that we're building on. And so if you, were, if you weren't with us, the first week we talked about this idea of being an apprentice of Jesus and that when Jesus called people to be his disciples, he wasn't inventing discipleship. It existed in rabbinical traditions, this idea of following a rabbi closely and, 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 and being with the rabbi and learning how to live as they lived. And we talked about in this series, our prayer is that we would learn to be with Jesus, to obey Jesus, and to do all the things that Jesus has done. And last week, Pastor Denise talked about the disciplines of silence and solitude, and how if you and I want to be intentionally close to Jesus, following him, these disciplines have to show up in our life. We have to find ways to cultivate them in our lives, especially in the noise and clutter of modern life. Today, we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of prayer. But we're going to talk about it in a very specific way. I hope that as we look at prayer through this lens, that we will walk away today, number one, wanting to pray. If you're here today and the honest assessment of your heart is, I don't have a desire to pray right now. I'm praying for you. I'm praying with you that you would walk away saying, I feel my heart getting warmed. I want to be with Jesus. I want to cultivate my life around the being of Jesus and, and worshiping him and knowing him. But I'm also praying that for all of us, that we would walk away not just with a burning desire, but with some intention, with a clear path, things that we're going to do that are going to show up in our calendar, in our life, in order for us to achieve this vision of being people who closely follow Jesus. And so the way we're going to talk about prayer is in this following frame. I want to give you the simplest definition of prayer that I can think of that captures what I believe is the essence of prayer that, that scripture gives us. And that is this, that prayer is quite simply prioritizing the presence of God. Can you say that with me? Prayer is... See, you didn't even wait for me to cue it up. You're ready to go. Prayer is prioritizing the presence of God. You know, um, I was born in Puerto Rico. I uh, grew up in a Latino home. have the scars to prove it. Um, and uh, I'm very proud of my heritage. And, but I'm not always around my people a lot. Um, our church is very diverse. There, there are Latinos here. But we're not the overwhelming uh, majority. And then... I'm around lots of diverse leaders and people all over the city. Also, my wife is, uh, is white. I have half-white kids, and so I'm around lots of white people. Um, I love white people. Um, and, and so I forgot something about our people. How many Latinos in the room? And look around in a moment as I describe this. There's going to be some people that are going to give wholehearted nods, and they're going to say, how did you forget that, Chris? And so here's what I forgot. I had someone who reached out, uh, and they wanted to meet with me. Hey, Pastor Chris, can we meet? And so here I was trying to accommodate, and, and I gave them multiple options of how we could meet as quickly as possible because it sounded like they needed to process something. So I didn't want them to wait. So I said, hey, here's an option. We can meet over Zoom. We can meet over a call. We could do and just politely, like, no, no. Uh, can we meet in person? Like, oh, okay, well, on this day I'm in Manhattan. I hate to ask you to meet me in Manhattan, but uh, can you meet in Manhattan? Sure. I'm like, wow, they're willing to meet me in Manhattan. But then that didn't pan out, and so then uh, the next day I gave a bunch of other options. And it's like, Zoom, call, no, no. Well, if you want to meet in person, here's another odd place in the city, because I have some other meetings there. It was like, sure. They were willing to get on multiple buses, whatever, just to meet in person. And as I was processing this, my friend, I actually happened to be in the presence of my friend who's uh, from the Dominican Republic. He pastors a church in the Bronx. And he says, you look confused. I'm like, yeah, I kind of am. Like, I, I, I want to make sure. Like, I meet with one of our members, and I'm giving them a bunch of options. 
and they just really want to meet in person. He was like, Latino? I said, matter of fact, they are. He was like, come on, bro. You know our people. We don't want to talk over the phone. We want to meet in person. We want to feel you. We want to be in your presence. And I was like, oh, my gosh. How did I forget that? It didn't, it, convenience wasn't the question. Uh, like, fitting it in wasn't the question. Being, like, expeditious with time and management. and No. Presence mattered. Even if it's inconvenient. Even if it means multiple buses. Even if it's at a weird time. Even if I have to travel. I would rather be in your physical presence to share this than to feel like I'm going to share something over a phone or over Zoom. There's something that felt lost there. When I think about prayer and what God invites us to, thankfully, he has not invited us into something where it's just like this neat transaction, where it's just like this really cookie-cut way and it's like this contained thing and it fits in this very neat compartment um, and it's always simple and it's just like, no, it's, it's, it's actually often very inconvenient. And, and it doesn't always happen easily. And actually to pray the way we're invited to it often means you have to reprioritize and kind of shift things around. And it involves sacrifice. In order to prioritize presence, not just exchange words, it costs something. And what we see in the scriptures, what we've been invited into is this invitation to prioritize the presence of God through prayer. That prayer, what it, it kind of functions in our lives is prayer in many ways, it reorients us. It brings us back. When we veer, when we stray, when we, when we, when we find ourselves in that way, when we pray, prayer brings us back. How, how many people enjoy hiking? Or, or camping. Some good hands. I don't envy you people, honestly. I, like, I look at you from afar, I'm like, I, I love you, but nah, no good. I'm good. You know, you want to come, Pastor Chris? No, hard pass. You know, like, I, I, I don't want to be chased by something or bitten by something. I got the seven train for that. You know, like, I'm good. I don't got to be outdoors. We're good. But there's some folks in our church that are hardcore hikers and campers. And you say, who are they? Let me tell you, just go in the hallway and just say, I bought a tent today. They'll find you. All of a sudden, like, how big? Where's that? There's some hardcore outdoor people. And the ones that are real hardcore, I've, I've heard this over the years, they don't take you seriously. You're just posing. You're just a wannabe. Unless you've been in a situation where you were lost in the woods and a compass was your only, the only difference between your survival. Where you were so lost, and the only way you made it back is because you pulled out this compass, and it brought you back to safety. Prayer, for us, functions like a compass. I don't know a lot about camping, but I know this about compasses. That if you find yourself walking in a direction... Whatever direction is, the compass is going to keep alerting you to where north is. And so if you go to the right and north is over here, it's going to be letting you know, hey, you got to turn this way. If you go this way and north is there, it's going to keep telling you, turn. It's going to keep reminding you, this is your due north. And prayer, if prayer is prioritizing the presence of God, prayer functions in a similar way. When you and I find ourselves prioritizing other things, where now all of a sudden it's like, if I'm honest, my job is more important. That's my due north. Prayer says, no, no, God is your source. Or if you find yourself saying, you know, I just find myself obsessing over this relationship or that circumstance. This is the thing I can't live without. And if it was out of my life, I wouldn't know what to do. Prayer says, no, God is your ultimate provider and your source. He's what you need. Prayer functions in our lives as this compass that keeps bringing us back to a life where we prioritize the presence of God, being with God, building our lives around God. And that's where the passages that we looked at in Exodus and Luke and Mark really tell us something profound. Because when we read the passage in Exodus, it tells us 
of a phenomenon that was happening with the children of Israel. If you know the story, if you don't, they were wandering through the desert as nomadic people. God led them out of slavery from Egypt, and he's leading them toward the promised land. Moses is leading them through this journey. And throughout, they're they're in this ritual, this habit of pitching a tent, following the presence of God. God's presence seems to stop here. Let's pitch our tent. Let's be here. And then when the presence of God moves, they would pick up their tent and go in the direction of the presence of God. When they would be pitched and, and like kind of do camp and, and be stationary in their tents, at the center of their encampment, if you read Exodus, it tells you at the center of their encampment was this larger tent called the Tent of Meeting. And God instructed his people to build this tent so that there and only there he would speak to them. And we read that at this moment, the presence of God was hovering over this tent and Moses entered into it and it says he spoke to God the way a person speaks to their friend, face to face. But notice it said something. It said the rest of the people of Israel, hundreds of thousands of people, they all could see the tent from the front of their personal tent. It says they stood at the door of their tent when they saw the presence of God and they stood at attention in reverence because the presence of God was there and God was speaking. That visual is such a powerful visual because what it, what it, it describes a life for these people that in their everyday life, as they would get up in the morning and they would, they're farming and, and they're raising livestock and they're taking care of their family and they're going hunting and they're just they're living this nomadic life, they're living in tents, that there was this moment and whenever that moment happened, life stopped and they stood at attention and they paused to recognize the presence of God because God was at the center of their life as a people. Why that image is so amazing, especially for us in our modern times, is that for us, the dilemma seems to often be that we're trying to fit God into our busy, crammed lives. We're trying to find ways where we can fit God in. And how often does it seem like we never have space for him? Yet, the people of Israel at that time, they weren't trying to Fit their, they weren't trying to fit God in their life. They were building their lives around God. God was at the center, and they built their life around communion with God. It was at the very core of their life. See, they were asking, they were living out a different question. They weren't living out the question of how does God fit in my life. They were saying, how is my life built around God? Because he's at the center. Communion with him is at the center. And everything else needs to revolve around that. Isn't that convicting? Isn't that something that we have to wrestle with? This, this, this reality that for, uh, for us, living in a city like New York with the pace and the busyness and the overflowing nature of life, we're so often trying to find these little crevices of time where we could fit God in And what does that leave us? It leaves us exhausted. It leaves us unfulfilled. We're empty. And often God gets the scraps. But this gives us a different image of, wait, what if you built your life around God being at the center? And if you build your life in that way, what it means is that certain things in our life will have to be dropped. Certain things won't get a priority if God at the center is our ultimate priority. But we also get this imagery kind of building out when we see in this, this heart, we see this lived out in the life of Jesus, where if you read the Gospels, it shows up multiple times. It says that Jesus often withdrew to solitary places. Whether it was early in the morning or late at night, he had this rhythm of life that he was constantly withdrawing to prioritize being with the Father. And we read in the Gospel of Luke at this moment, he had just finished praying. And the moment he stopped praying, one of the disciples said, hey, can you teach us how to pray? 
Now, you have to imagine this image. It kind of like speaks to Moses in Exodus. They're watching communion happen. Like he's praying. They've seen him do this a lot of times. This was his habit. This was his rhythm. And by this point, they know this seems to be the secret. This seems to be why or at the heart of what makes his life so exceptional. If we're picking up the clues, he always prioritized this. This seems to be the most important thing. And they pick up on it. And so they ask, teach us to pray. Now, mind you, all the things they could have asked Jesus to teach them. They could have said, Jesus, teach us to multiply a little kid's lunch. That was amazing. I'd love to be able to do that. I could open up a Whole Foods in this desert. It's a wrap. Teach me how to do that. Or they could have said, teach us how to raise the dead. Could you imagine? They have Jesus in front of them. They could have asked him to teach them anything. Or they could have said, teach us how to mesmerize people with your words. Thousands of people would listen on countrysides as Jesus spoke. And his words continue to reverberate since then throughout time in all cultures, all languages. But that's not what they asked. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to build life the way you've built it where everything is around the centrality of this rhythm of going away, praying, and living life from that center. And furthermore, when we get to the Gospel of Mark, the passage we read, at the core, when Jesus calls his disciples, his apostles, the main essence of that invitation was he called them to be with him, to be with him. Yes, they did other things, and they would go on to do amazing things. But at the core, the, the primary invitation was, come and be with me. And so prayer is this opportunity to reorient our lives around prioritizing the presence of God. God being at the center of our lives. Not God trying to fit into our over-crammed, overflowing lives but no, it's saying, if God is at the center of my life, then I'm going to build my life around being with God. Which means certain things will remain and certain things won't carry over. But I'm going to build my life around God. So with that thought in mind, prayer is prioritizing the presence of God, being with God. I want to talk about two ways that we can grow in prayer in this way of prioritizing the presence of God, being with God. And then I want to end by talking about our biggest motivation. What should be our motivation in doing this? So if you and I are going to be people of prayer, the kind of prayer people that see prayer as a prioritization of the presence of God, being with God, building our lives around God, we're going to have to grow in prayer in two very specific ways. The first growth edge for us is learning to see prayer as being with God apart from everything. Can you say that with me? Being with God apart from everything. What do I mean by that? I hinted at it already. We see in the life of Jesus the way he built his life around intimacy with God and prayer for Jesus involved retreating, going away, going into solitary places, whether it was a desert or on a, on a mountainside. He was always trying to build his life around this rhythm of being alone with God. Where life was out there, the busyness, the crowds, the demands, but there was this sacred, solitary, isolated place in his life where the noise of life, the demands of life were kept at bay because he was being with God apart from everything. We often read in the Gospels that the disciples would have to go search for Jesus. They're like, these crowds are calling for you. They're looking for you. And they would have to go search for him and find him in these deserted, lonely, isolated places where he was in prayer. And saying, where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. He did this so often. He built his life in such a way that he had this time where he was with the Father Apart from everything. Nothing could distract 
Nothing was allowed to be close. He insulated himself in such a way where he could prioritize just being with the Father. If we're going to grow in prayer, if we're going to become people that prioritize the presence of God through prayer, then we're going to have to grow in this capacity of having these solitary, isolated, away from the noise spaces and times where we're being with God. For some of us, that may mean early in the morning, before anybody wakes up, before we check our emails, before the demands and noise begins, and that's our time. For some of us, it looks like in the busyness of life, I was talking with someone after the first service, they actually are from uh, Michigan. They were around Lake Superior. They, they, so they, when they think about solitary places, this is what comes to mind. And now they've been living in the city. It was like, I have no solitary place. There's, there's people everywhere. For that person and for, for anyone that resonates with that, your solitary place may be a chair in your apartment. A chair that maybe it stares into a corner or maybe it looks at a window and on the other side of that window is a brick wall, backyard. It's not great, but it's, that's your solitary place. You know what my solitary place was when I first became a Christian? This is really sad, but we lived in a, in a very small uh, Sunset Park, Brooklyn apartment. We, I didn't have a bedroom. My bedroom was the living room. Uh, I slept on a day bed and so I needed a solitary place. It was the bathroom, yo. And so literally, I would get up early in the morning and just be in this bathroom. This bathroom was so small. It was, a, it was a bathroom built for hobbits. I'm not kidding you. Like the sink was at my knees. You turn one way, you hit the, the, the bathtub. The other way, you hit the pipe, you know, that was steaming hot. And I'd be there, and that was my solitary place until someone, I'd have to go out, wait, and then they were done. And sometimes I could go in, sometimes I couldn't, you know. And so this was the solitary place. Not ideal, not great. And so I get it. All of, all, we all have various challenges with the limitations of space and how crowded our life is. It's less about how posh or how ideal your solitary place is, and it's more about do you have one? Is there a space and a time in your life that's designated as this is me and God time? Nothing gets involved here. Screens are off. Phones are off. No one can reach me here. This is me and God. My wife often reminds me of our first date, which apparently I didn't realize how thin of, uh, of ice I was on. That uh, I, We celebrate 17 years of marriage this coming July. And thank you, thank you. It might not have been anything. I had no idea the thin ice I was on because our first date, now to give you some context, um, just so that you don't think I was that awful of a person, but I, I, I needed help. I was out of, out, of, out of balance. I have workaholic tendencies, especially when I was in my 20s. I had something to prove. Um, I was working a lot, like seven days a week in ministry, um, no rest, no Sabbath. It was out of control. Uh, and I was a Addicted to my cell phone. Let me tell you, they built cell phones for people like me. It was just like, here's a drug, you know. It's like, <sighs> and so when it would buzz, it was like, mm, I like it, you know. And so <laughs> apparently, I had no idea. We're having uh, dinner, first dinner date, getting to know each other, and the phone buzzed. I had no idea. It was like second nature. It was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Flip phone, y'all. It was a Netflix. A net, what was that? Uh, the, the chirp? The next tell. Yep. The chirp. It was like, oh, give me one second. I'm sorry. Oh, you were saying? And we're talking, and then all of a sudden, give me one second. I, you, do you hear the groans in the room? It's like, oh, be done. I would have walked out. She was thinking this. I had no idea. She was actually talking to God, and she said, I like this guy, but if this is what life is going to be like, if everyone's going to have access to him, and it's never going to be just us, I can't do this. And I kid you not, the phone rang a third time. And I went to pick it up, 
And all of a sudden, in my heart, I felt the Holy Spirit say, put it down. I was like, <laughs> and she noticed. And she said, what happened? I said, I don't want to be over-spiritual, but I just felt like the Holy Spirit told me not to pick up the phone. And she, like, her shoulders got down. I was like, oh. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, I've been doing this the whole time. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I, I need to, let me put this away. And I tricked her long enough. To, <laughs> years later, she still hates my phone. Um, I've gotten better. I've gotten better, I promise. Uh, she, doesn't, she doesn't give me excuses. She always makes sure I'm present at home. But it's still a struggle. Um, however, I think about what must God feel like when he wants to be with us and everybody can get us. Just we're accessible to everybody. And he can't have us because we're distracted and we're pulled in these different ways. That's what the solitary place, this posture of I'm going to learn to be with God apart from everything. It's a separate space, just me and God. That's what it builds in us, this hidden intimacy, this space that's just for us and God. Oh, man. If you've had those moments, you know what I'm talking about, where it's just like, just give me Jesus. Take the world. That's all I need. When you're with him, when you're in his presence, and nothing could get in the way, because everything is kept at bay, because you've built this solitary place. That's one way that some of us, that's probably the first priority for some of us, you're looking at your life and you're saying, actually, I don't have a solitary place and I don't have designated times where it's just me and God. That's the thing I have to walk out of here, figuring out what that looks like for me. So we have to learn to be with God apart from everything. And we see that in the life of Jesus. We see that throughout the scriptures. Daniel um, uh, is a great example of just being with God apart from everything. Um, we see that in the Psalms, uh, multiple Psalms, where it says, early in the morning will I rise to seek thee. Uh, you, you, we see that in the Song of, so um, Song of Solomon. is like, my beloved says, come away with me. This, uh, this imagery in scriptures, like God inviting us, just be with me apart from the world. Be with me before everything. But the other thing that we have to grow in is learning how to be with God in everything. How to be with God in everything. Can you say that with me? Be with God in everything. Wouldn't it be amazing if in the middle of your crazy, hectic day, whatever your work looks like, if you're a teacher and you're with screaming kids and, and Sally's about to hit Johnny, you know, or, or maybe you're in finance and you're uh, just the busyness of trades and deals and contracts and multiple Zoom calls, or maybe you're in tech, and, uh, or maybe you're, you're a stay-at-home parent, or you're just finished school, and you're trying to figure out life, and busyness and hecticness looks so different for all of us in various ways. Wouldn't it be amazing to have an unlimited capacity and an unchallenged way of life to say, stop, I'm going to go retreat now. Could you imagine? It's Monday, tomorrow. Some of you are going to be on Zoom calls with, with bosses and teammates. And imagine the moment it gets stressful, the deadline, just say, stop. What's the matter? It's like, I'm going to go and be with God. I'll be back. You'll be fired. You know, like, they're, they're, that's not how life works. You'll be seen as weird. It, it just, life is not built that way. You can't just tell everything to stop and go and retreat and come back. We have to learn how to be with God in the midst of everything. Here's why. For practical reasons. If any of you have ever enjoyed like an early morning time of prayer, and you woke up early before everything, and you open up your Bible, you could still hear the pages crinkle if you actually have a physical Bible or the screen lit up, whatever. And so you're with God. You have your favorite cup of whatever, coffee, tea, or starting out the day, it's quiet and you're with God, and he filled you with his presence, and you just, you just met him in scripture, and 
you're, you're just, your heart is just overflowing with a sense of his love and his presence. And you leave that moment just feeling optimistic and hopeful. Uh, and, and if you're like me, I, I leave those moments and I definitely feel kinder. I definitely feel like a nicer person. Like my kids tell me that. My wife tells me that. Oh, you were praying. How'd you know? You're nicer. You know, like it, you, you feel nicer. And so it, you, by 12 o'clock, that's gone. Whatever good effect that had. You, since then, you were on a crowded train, and someone, like, pushed you, and, and someone honked a horn, and you, you, like, you weren't even near them, you know? A, a pigeon robbed you for your wallet, you know? Like, just so many things have happened, and by the time it's noon, any kind of sense of, I'm filled with God, you're depleted. And so, what do you do then? We, can't, we don't have the luxury to just say, I'm just going to go retreat now. And keep retreating and get, keep getting filled. I wish our lives were like that, but it isn't. It isn't reality. It isn't how life is built. We can't often walk away from a screaming child or from a pressing deadline, uh, from the obligations and responsibilities that are rightly on our shoulders. We have to figure out ways to stay in the pressure of that, but to stay in those moments and learn to be with God in the midst of everything. One of the greatest examples and stories that the, the potency of this story has carried on for quite some time, I think it's a couple hundred years at this point, came from a monk named Brother Lawrence. He wrote this incredible book that continues to speak to people today, and it's called Practicing the Presence of God. Now, this, it, it, it's kind of funny for me in that he was a monk in a monastery, apart from society. Stillness and quietness fills his life, and yet his biggest struggle was he struggled to pray. He, was, he felt always distracted, and life felt noisy and too busy, and he just didn't know how to pray. Imagine that. Like some of you, and, and I often think, it's like, you know what would help my prayer life? Let me just get out of the city. He was as far away from the city as possible, and he's saying, help, I, I need help, I'm struggling. And in the process of that journey, he discovers this capacity to actually encounter God powerfully while he was doing the dishes. He's over here scrubbing dishes, cleaning dishes for all the folks in the monastery. This was his act of service. This is his communal responsibility. And in the everyday ordinariness of cleaning dishes, he describes this sense of just pure ecstasy in the presence of God. Where it was like the line between heaven and earth had become thin. And it was there while he was washing the dishes that he had some of the most exuberant, amazing, transformative times in God's presence. How many wish chores felt like that in your life, right? I wash the dishes all the time, Chris. I don't feel like that. He, he figured out a way to be conscious of God in the everything of life. And so he, even though he was at a place designed to retreat, it was in the busyness of chores that he discovered a capacity to have communion with God. Imagine if our lives had both things built in these solitary, dedicated, focused places and times where we say this is just me and God, and in addition, in the hustle and bustle, in the demands and all the things that are happening, we develop this capacity to keep turning our hearts to God. In between emails, we turn to God. In the midst of conversation, we're feeling stress and anxiety. Inwardly, we turn to God. Before we rush to something else and we just pause, even for, it's just a few moments. We're just constantly aware, I could live my life apart from communion with God, but why would I? Even in the midst of the busyness, I can be with God in the ordinariness of life if I learn how to be with God in the midst of everything. But now, as we're getting ready to land the plane, um, I'm very conscious of the fact that I know when I hear sermons like this, I'm very much ready, like, I'm ready to charge. Just 
Say amen. Let me out of here. This week, watch me. I'm going to crush this. Watch solitary places with God. Here I come. The world's never seen a person of prayer like this. Where's the video crew? You should follow me. You're about to see some stuff. Like, I'm ready to take the hill, like, energized and excited. But how often, number one, does that fizzle very quickly? Like, by Monday morning, it might fizzle. Um, maybe we get to Tuesday. This motivation isn't enough. This rah-rah isn't enough. Life hits us fast and fierce. And then we're kind of reset. But as disappointing as that is, I actually paint a, a more worrisome picture. If some of us leave here and we actually crush it, our life all of a sudden has multiple times of prayer and we're solitary times of prayer and we learn to be with God in our everything. But our motivation is to do those things in order to prove our worthiness. We're going to pray a lot so that God will know, hey, you should bless me because I deserve it. I've been good. Look at my schedule. Look at my priorities. Clearly you could agree I'm doing all the right things. How easily we could leave here ready to just perform and try to earn our place and view prayer as this checklist to feel good about ourselves and superior than others. Oh, you're one of those? Oh, you don't have a solitary place? Mm, sorry about that. You know, maybe next year. Maybe you'll join us mature people. It, how easily pride can grow if our motivations are off. But I want to leave us with the best possible motivation that I could find that has the capacity to fuel you for the long haul, to form us into people of prayer that prioritize the presence of God for the long haul, that steers us away from trying to prove and earn our place before God. And the motivation is found in Jeremiah 31, verse 3. It says this, the Lord appeared to him from far away. Hear what God says. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. If you want to know what God is thinking about you right now, Jeremiah 31.3 tells us that God's thoughts are the following. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. I propose this motivation for us. What if we begin to prioritize our life around the presence of God? What if we build these solitary spaces in our life that we could learn to be with God apart from everything? And what if we learn to be with God in the midst of everything not to perform, not to earn, but we're doing that because we know that all along this whole time, God has been waiting for us with powerful, affectionate love. He's just been there waiting for us. In some ways, waiting for us to tire from realizing what we're looking for out there and in these places that are going to disappoint us. He's had it all along, waiting for us. You know, uh, we just finished exiting out of uh, the Christmas Hallmark season, which I think is one of the worst seasons of television, you know, throughout the year. I, I, if you like Hallmark, please don't be offended. I, I really don't, I dislike that channel so much to the utter core of my being. Um, I, I can't tell you enough. I hate the storylines. I hate the plots. I think they're so unrealistic. Um, I, I could tell you them before. I, give me three seconds watching. I was like, I know how this is going to end. And I like a high degree of accuracy. Um, however, there's one storyline that shows up in, those, in, those, in Hallmark that as corny as I think it is, when they do it, um, I actually think it powerfully mirrors the essence of the good news of Jesus. Here's the storyline. There's a main character, and she pursues, or he pursues, all these different love interests, and they all falter. 
They never really materialize. And they're, they're left alone and aching for that true companion. But then all of a sudden, before the movie ends, wait a second. You've been here all along. How did I miss you? You've loved me this whole time? Yes, since I was five. You know, like, it, and it was like, I was out here searching, oh, far and wide and disappointed. You've been here all along. And all of a sudden, there's a meeting of the hearts, and everything's good, and just so happens he buys the country club. It's a weird thing, you know, like, it, it's, oh, the resort is yours too? This is Hallmark. It's just like, wait, you're broke and you can afford this? Yes, you know, anyway. But the storyline of there's this, been this person waiting all along with burning hot love and devotion that was ignored, dismissed, overlooked, and the moment they're noticed, lives are changed. In, in, in a very real way, that is the living God waiting for us to build lives of prayer because he's been faithfully waiting for us all along, saying, oh, I can't wait. I hope you start building your life around prayer, because if you do, on the other side of that, you're going to be with me, and you're going to find the love you've been searching for. You're going to find the faithfulness directed toward you that no one else and nowhere else can provide. What you've been searching for and been missing, you will find it in me. And so imagine if we build lives of prayer, not from the motivation of, I'm doing this so that God could love me. Rather, I'm doing this because he already does. Me praying and building my life around prayer is me agreeing that my life is best lived out in the presence of your love. And I'm going to build my life around these solitary, like dedicated, away from the beaten path, just me and God moments, and also build my life around these moments of God in the midst of my everything and the busyness of life, all because I know prayer orients me to be with God who passionately loves me. As you are. He's not waiting to love you more when you obey. He's not waiting to say, man, when you obey, you're going to experience more. No, right now, at your present level of, of obedience, he will never love you more than he loves you right now. And he wants you and I to orient our lives around that love. That's what a life of prayer can look like. That's what awaits us. So as we close, and as the worship team comes forward, here's what I'd like for us to do. If, we, if I could invite us to stand at this time, because as we close our time today. We're going to close our time.